You know, one of the things that I enjoy uh, as being a dad and just also having worked with kids is I love how young kids deal in absolutes. Uh, I absolutely love that. See what I did there? Absolutely. Um, But I, I have a younger person in my life who loves to declare on a regular basis that this was the best day ever. And then usually shortly after it, this is the worst day of my entire life. And I've heard this from this individual multiple times, and and I love that. And and what's ironic about that is that our culture actually deals with those same kind of absolutes, don't they? I used to work for a newspaper, Uh, don't hold that against me, Uh, but I worked at the newspaper at Clackamas Community College and at George Fox, and I was the editor-in-chief at George Fox, and I took classes on journalism. And one of the things that journalists do is when they're talking about an individual is they kind of summarize that individual, right? So if you're telling a story about somebody who's done something bad, you might want to contrast it with something they've done good, right? This individual, he is a this and it's good, a father or whatever. Or if you're like, this guy is a monster and I don't like him, You might throw in something else like two-time convicted this or addicted to that or whatever. And that's really, that's how journalism works. Journalism takes your best day or your worst day and it becomes the adjective that describes you. So for example, if I was to describe an individual, you probably all will know who this individual is. But if I said NFL MVP running back, some of you are like, okay, you lost me, football, right? Say, okay, um, starred in multiple Hollywood blockbusters, comedian, father of several kids, award-winning. Now, if I started saying things like arrested for robbery, indicted for murder, but found unguilty, not found unguilty, not guilty, (laughs) because the glove didn't fit. You all know who I'm talking about now, O.J. Simpson. So what defines O.J. Simpson? Is it his best day? Is it his worst day? Or is it something in between? So I ask you for a second. Think about that. What would be your best day? And now I'm not talking about a day where something happened to you and it just was fortuitous. I I Googled this, best day ever, besides getting a SpongeBob SquarePants song. It's kind of catchy. I'm not going to sing it. Besides getting that, were a bunch of random pictures, like the guy who parked his brand new Mercedes-Benz next to the tree, and the tree splits, but it catches, and it doesn't fall on his car. Or the person who parked in front of a building, and the wall of the building fell over, and the car fit perfectly in the window. Best day ever. Now, those are days that, there's a bunch of random papers up here. Sorry. Uh, A little OCD on that one. Sorry about that. But best day ever, I mean, a day that you did something, a day that you did something and you feel like I earned that day. Maybe it's something like you were on a sports team and you won the big game, you won a title, a championship. Maybe you got a promotion. Maybe you convinced that girl that's way above your standing to marry you. I know I did. Um, Maybe it's the birth of a child. Maybe it's something like that that you did and you go, that was my best day ever. Now, those are sometimes hard to think of, but I know the other one you can think of. What was my worst day ever? Again, not something somebody did to you, but maybe something you chose to do. You know, there are scores of people today in jail because of their worst day ever. 
There are scores of people who don't go to church because they're reliving their worst day ever and they think, I can't possibly go there. I can't possibly be there. No one would ever forgive me. So do these things define us? Do they define us? Do they decide who we are? How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as the state champion? Do we see ourselves as the CEO? Do we see ourselves as the successful whatever? Or do we see ourselves by our worst day, a failure, a mistake, an addict, an adulterer, a murderer? Today, God's Word is going to show us the truth. You are not defined by what you do. You are not defined by your best or your worst. You're defined by your relationship to the God of the universe. And that's incredibly good news because, spoiler alert, He keeps His word. He is faithful when we're unfaithful. He is loving when we're unloving. He remembers His promises and His covenants with us when we forget them very, very quickly. He is a faithful groom. We are the unfaithful bride. And this is good news for all of us, and we need to hear it because, and this is the one thing that you all have to get, forgiveness is available. Don't miss that today. Don't miss the fact that your heart wants to be hardened, your heart probably is hardened, but thanks be to God, forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is something that you can have today. Why? Not because of us, not because of what we've done or not done, but because of what Ephesians 1.7 says, according to his riches of grace, his mercy. Not how abundant we work, not how good we are, not all the boxes we've checked, not all the things we've memorized, but in his grace and his mercy. So the goal of today's psalm is to understand God's grace. Okay, so let's do a little context work. Psalm 105 last week and Psalm 106, these are sister psalms. They go together. Psalm 105 last week was all about what God did for Israel. And if you remember, it's a long list of things. He made the nation. He chose the nation. He put his blessing on the nation. He provided all the plagues, got them out of Egypt, and with their pockets full of money. This this one today is how Israel responds to that. 105 gave us God's grace. 106 is Israel's disgrace. 105 is God's faithfulness. Here is Israel's unfaithfulness. And really, these two psalms summarize the entire Bible, don't they? Psalm 105, how great is God in giving his love to fallen creatures. 106, how undeserving we are over and over and over again. But God still shows his favor. What a cool story. These go together. Psalm 105 was all the way up to the Exodus. 106 is from the Exodus on. It's really the story of Israel. The key here is Israel constantly fails, but God constantly is loyal. The two go together. So this is a sober and chilling reminder of what we know to be true and that we are sinners. Whenever Israel is in the subject line of this week's psalm, it's always bad. It's always bad. It's Israel did this, and Israel forgot that, and Israel messed up here, and it keeps getting worse and worse. And so this really helps us see the fallacy of the once saved, always saved. This idea that all you got to do is pass through the Red Sea, and then you're saved is shown to not be true. Israelites passed through the Red Sea, 
but they didn't grab a hold of their God. They didn't submit to their God. They didn't follow him with all their might in response. And so what did they end up doing? They ended up dying in the wilderness. So there's a warning here. Don't take your salvation for granted. Now, it's really easy. I know I've done this. You look at the Israelites and you go, oh, those dumb Israelites. They're so stupid. How could they be so dumb? We must remember. The Apostle Paul makes a point for us. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things, that he's talking about the stories in the Old Testament, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So these stories in the Old Testament are not just there to make the book thicker, right, so they can charge more. No, these stories are here for us to see, you know what, we are just like Israel. We are just like Israel. God does a marvelous thing in our lives, and immediately we go back to, well, what have you done for me lately? We need to not forget the lesson of Psalm 105. We have been blessed by a God who provides all of our needs, and our response to him is ignorance and forgetfulness and betrayal and ultimately sin. So let's start the psalm, verse 1. This is where the psalm starts. It's also where the psalm ends in verse 48. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is what the psalmist wants us to see as the main point of this psalm. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Now, he didn't declare all of it, but he did utter those, those deeds in the previous psalm. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. So there's a beatitude there. There's a blessing saying, if you do this, you will be blessed. Then in verse 48, he says, blessed be, the, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. So on either end, we've got hallelujah, the Hebrew word for praise the Lord, on this psalm at the beginning and the end. This is the focus of this psalm. And what the psalmist wants us to do is verses 4 through 47 is see why we should praise the Lord. What is it that gives us ground to go praise the Lord? Hallelujah. Spurgeon says, since man ceases not to be sinful, it's a great blessing that Jehovah ceases not to be merciful. From age to age, the Lord deals graciously with his church. And to every individual in it, he is constant and faithful in his grace, even forevermore. Verse 3, it said, blessed. That word blessed can also mean happy. Our translators don't put the word happy there because our version of happy is very truncated. It's very small. They put the word blessed there. It's a much fuller word. But really what he's saying here is he's saying those who are walking in righteousness, those who are following God will be happy. They have peace when they do it the way God wants us to do it. And if you think about it, we can, we can think of a, a story that Jesus said about the narrow way versus the wide way. The narrow way is the road that leads to God. It leads to happiness. It leads to joy. But the wide way, the easy way, the popular way, the promoted way, the advertised on public television way is the way that leads to destruction. This is the story of Israel choosing the way of destruction. 
It's very sad, but it's also convicting. Verse 4, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He's, he's reminding the Lord of his promises, and the Lord promised that he would take care of these people. And when we're faithless, he is faithful. So this psalm is about the ingratitude of God's people. So now verses 6 through 46, this is the core that we're going to spend our time on. This is the section where we need to understand if we're going to be true disciples of God, if we're going to follow Jesus with all our might, we must see and understand grace. We must see and understand the gospel. Because here's the truth. Israel, on her very best day as a nation, was not good enough to earn entrance into heaven. No matter how great Israel did, no matter how many times they got it right, they were not good enough to walk into heaven. But also, Israel, on her worst day, doing the most abominable of sins, which we're going to see recounted here in a minute, on her worst day, she is not so far from God that if she repents, he won't take her back immediately. This is grace. This is getting something we don't deserve. And this grace is extended through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we never get past that. Whether you've been in church for 60 years or six minutes, you can't get past that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the means by which we approach God. It's the means by which we are able to interact with God. So we can never get past the gospel. So verses 6 through 8 confession time. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. That's another word for sin. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So what we see there is, remember, all of the plagues had been done, and as the plagues are going, finally they kick them out, and they give them all the back pay, their pockets, their, their purses are full of gold, They had plundered the Egyptians, and as they're leaving, they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they grumble, and they say, why did we do this? Are you serious? You just let us out here to die? Verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake. Verse 7 says, they didn't remember. It's the root of all human sin is ingratitude. Romans 1.21, they neither glorify God as God nor give thanks to him. Tim Keller writes, this may not sound very serious, but it is the crime of plagiarism. It's both theft and lie. It robs others of their due and creates the illusion that you know more than you do. Sin is cosmic ingratitude. Gives the delusion that you're able to conduct and hold your life together. Actually, every day that your heart keeps pumping, your country's not invaded, and your brain keeps working, is a wholly undeserved gift by God. We ought to live simple, normal, uneventful days full of amazed and thankful joy. So the Israelites had every reason to be grateful, but they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they go, oh man, we can't do it. And God goes, all right, I'm still going to save you and show you my power. And really, this is the theme. Yet he saved them. In spite of all of their grumbling, he saved them. Isn't that us? In spite of all of the things that we do to not earn it, God saves. Why? to make his name great, and to show his mighty power. 
So why is there so much history being recounted in this? This is weird. This is a weird song to be singing. We don't sing songs like this. I probably should have talked to Chris and maybe we could have found one. But find, find a hymn that recounts all bad history, right? I mean, the only song that I could think of that came close to this was We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. But even that doesn't work because it's all the positives. I think if we're going to have the Israel version, it's We Tried to Quench the Fire by the Israel Band. Because that's what Israel's doing is, is God's doing these amazing things and they keep coming along as the wet blanket and going, oh, we'll never get away. Oh, we'll never get out. Oh, we'll, so on and so forth. So why is this hymn, this song that Israel would sing, why is it full of so much negative? And the answer is, it's grace. By showing how bad Israel is, it shows how much greater God is. It's a recounting of history to show grace. So here we go. Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries and not one of them was left. It says not one of the most powerful army on the planet at that time was left. God wiped all of them out. Every single one. This makes what comes next even more sorrowful. Not one member of Egypt's army survived. They were all cast into the depths. Ironically, that's what God says he's going to do with our sins. Micah, Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Just like the Egyptians, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. But look back at verse 12. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. What it's saying here is Israel had just watched the plagues, all 10 of them, and those were not just, oh, look at little flies. It was bad. Not only that, but they were walking across the desert with a, a, a fire and cloud, and God's leading them, and Moses is doing all these incredible miracles, and they get to the Red Sea. They don't believe. It says only after they've walked through the Red Sea. That's the then in verse 12. Only then do they go, okay, maybe this God's, you know, he's, pretty, he's a pretty all right. He's pretty good. This is not praising Israel for what they did. As a matter of fact, this is not to their credit, but to their shame. The thing is, if all you do is believe in God because you've seen things, you are not really believing in God because the Egyptians, the Egyptians were believing in God. Remember I showed you last week that as the Egyptians were, as they were leaving, they were like, here, give this gold to your God because we believe in him and we don't want him mad at us. So even the Egyptians believed. And so this is Israel not at her best. This is Israel at her worst. God takes care of the superpower Egyptians. Why are you going to be scared about anything else? But yet the story goes on. Verse 13, But soon they forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. This is the sin of discontentment. They're discontent. Notice it says here, but soon they forgot his works. In the book of Exodus, it tells us three days, right? I mean, I kind of imagined, right, you've just seen the, the army destroyed, and you're kind of on a high. I mean, it's got to go at least a week before you start complaining, right? Israelites are three days out. I mean, just think about that for a second. 
they can probably still turn around and see the Red Sea. The Egyptian bodies are still floating on the top of it. They may still have clothes that are still wet from their time walking through. And yet, they're going, God, God, you let us out here to die. Do you even love us? Do you care? Do you even think about us, God? Three days later, they soon forgot. And this sets the trajectory for Israel. And it's the same trajectory for us. You forget, so you don't trust, and so you find something else to worship. And this is the picture that we see throughout Israel's story and ours. We forget what God does, even if it's the most amazing thing. And we have this belief that if God would only do X, Y, or Z, all of a sudden I'd believe. Yeah, for three days. And then you'd go, what have you done for me lately, God? When was the last thing you did anything for me, God? Well, it was three days ago, and it was amazing. Yeah, but today we get so focused on the now. And this is the trajectory that the Israelites were on. John Gill, a Puritan, writes, Past mercies should be remembered both for the glory of God and to encourage faith and hope in Him. We must constantly remember. We must be reminded of the truths that we know. So this is why this psalm is here. Verse 16, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abraham. Fire broke out in their company and the flame burned up the wicked. This is the sin of jealousy. So they're wandering in the wilderness and Dathan stands up and goes, you know, this Moses guy who like took on the Pharaoh and the plagues were done through him and did the whole Red Sea thing. Yeah, he's not that good. I'm better. Let, let me be in charge. And so God opens up the, the ground and swallows him and his followers whole. And just for good measure, he sends fire to destroy those who are also in agreement. This is all in Numbers 16. The sin of jealousy, the sin of thinking you could do it better. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb. What they make the calf out of? All the gold that they had in their pockets that God had gifted them. They take the thing that God had gifted them to offend the God of the universe by creating a fake God. Hmm. And worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. Um, I think the psalmist wanted us to remember that ox eats grass because they're low animals compared to the God of the universe. How bad do you have to not remember the God of the universe that you have to start worshiping an ox? Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This is the sin of idolatry. Everyone worships something. The question is, is what's it going to be? Is it going to be the God of the universe or some other created thing? Idols are attractive, even cows that eat grass. They had forgotten their God who had done the things that he had done in Egypt. We have short memories. Like I said, what have you done for me lately, Lord? We're tempted to wonder if God still loves us. We're tempted to go, God, do you, are you really paying attention? Are you really there? And this is one of the nice parts about being this side of the cross. Because no matter how bad our worst day is, we can look right back to the cross and go, yeah, he did. He does. He is thinking of me because Jesus went to the cross. And we see a foreshadowing of, of that in Moses, verse 23. Had not Moses, his chosen one, we see that word chosen one brought up a couple times here. This is foreshadowing to Jesus. 
All Moses can do is stand before God and go, don't kill him, please. Please don't kill him. Jesus can stand in front of God and go, don't damn them to hell. I paid the price. Jesus is the go-between. Moses is a pale shadow. Barnes writes, all the blessings that come upon sinners, all that is done to turn away wrath, deserved, is owed to the fact that the one great intercessor, greater than Moses, cast himself into the breach and met and rolled back the woes that were coming on a guilty world. So the, the, the damnation that we deserve, Jesus pushes it back way more than Moses ever could. Verse 24, then they despised the pleasant land. This is the promised land. It takes them to the edge of the promised land and they go, oh, how are we going to ever take out all these little teeny armies and a few giants? Who will help us? It seems like the setup for God to go, I'll do it, but they won't believe. They go, no, there's no way, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. This is the sin of disobedience. How could they not think that the God that destroyed the best army in the world was not going to take care of them here? But yet they did. They despised the pleasant land. They would not go in. They were not trusting God. And just like with the golden calf, Moses again intercedes. Moses goes, don't wipe them all out. Just wipe out this generation, which seems kind of crass and, and, and mean, but what Moses is saying is, remember your promise. You promised them a land. Keep your promise. And so they did. A whole generation dies in the wilderness. Then once they get into the land, verse 28, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. That was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. This is the sin of apostasy. This is where you renounce God for some other thing. Israel is now following the idol of sex. Baal was, an, uh, was a fake deity that you worshipped through sexual acts. And just like Moses, Phineas steps in. But instead of words, Phineas uses action. So the, the, the setting for this, Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. Israelites were living in Shittim. The men of Israel engaged in sexual immorality. And what happened was Phineas steps in and he kills the two leaders. And by killing them, the plague stops, they stop sinning, and they repent. So Phineas is like a second Moses. All of this is in Numbers 25. So again, they, they, they walk away from God. They follow after something. Sex is good. Sex is supposed to be enjoyed in a marital relationship. And here they've taken a good thing and they've made it illicit and they've decided, oh, we're going to do it to worship this false deity. Then in verse 32, they angered him, Moses, at the waters of Merida and went ill with Moses on their account for they made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. This is the sin of provocation. The sin of making someone so upset that they can't be in charge. If you remember this, this is where Moses strikes the rock out of anger. What the psalmist is showing is that even desire for illicit sex and legitimate needs like water can lead people to sin. And in both instances, they both go to sin. But loving God is the means by which our situations are done right. Verse 34 they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. This is, again, in the promised land. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. 
They served their idols, which became a snare, a trap for them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. This is the sin of paganization. This is the sin of worshiping a demon. Now, I want to make sure we see something here. Verse 36 and 37 go together. They served their idols and they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. Now, the Bible teaches that idols are not just little carved bald men that you put on a little shelf and bow down to. Instead, idols are demons masquerading as something. Let me show you what I mean. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19. Paul's writing, What do I imply then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So I want us to understand something. People in ancient times were not stupid, okay? We must check our chronological snobbery at the door. They valued their possessions, their money, their property, and yes, their children like we do. And so if they're going to sacrifice any of that at the altar of a false god. The god that's being talked about here is the demon Molech. It was a deity that you would heat up to red hot and then you would take your child and put it on its arms and you'd take the ashes of the child and put it into whatever you wanted to be fruitful. Mix it into your farming, mix it into your house, into your business, and by sacrificing a child, you could become wealthy. So these people were not stupid. And since demons are not stupid either, again, we don't want to be too infatuated with demons, but also don't think they don't exist. We want to be right in that sweet spot in the middle. I believe, and Paul is teaching, that demons masqueraded as these false deities. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Does it mean that whatever Molech looked like, that some demon appeared? Remember, they're fallen angels. They have powers. They're all limited. Maybe one of them appeared to somebody and they said, oh, we'll start a religion around you. Or maybe like the Egyptian magicians who could do all the same tricks that Moses was doing. I don't say tricks, but supernatural things. They were helped by something supernatural. And so this idea that demons are just made up things and these people were just stupid and, oh, let's sacrifice our kids is just ridiculous. Because demons are real and these people weren't stupid. So what does that mean for us today? Now in our culture, we don't make idols that people bow down to exactly like they did then. But are people bowing down to the idol of sex? Is Baal being worshipped today? Oh, you better believe it. How many millions and millions of minutes a year are spent on internet pornography? And that's just the hardcore stuff. How about Molech? Is there any sacrificing of children going on in our world today? Is that happening in our country? Is there blood on our hands? Yes. Now, are there demons still around? Yeah, I think there are. I think you see them a lot more in third world countries and places that are still very religious. Here in America, we don't got that. So what do they do? Well, they might impersonate things that will get us to think about other things besides God. 
Could be that those aliens that we're seeing pop up talking about in the news is something like that. I don't know. I can't speak authoritatively on that, but recognize here that these demons were who they worshipped, and they were doing it just the same way people are doing it to this day. What's interesting is that the Israelites are sent into Canaan, the promised land, to conquer it. But instead, the Canaanites conquer from the inside the Israelites. See what they did there? All right, and it's just the same thing with us. The enemy knows that if he does a full frontal assault on us and comes at us, most of us are going to resist. Oh, yeah, you can't bring that demonic thing into my house. No way. I know it. I see it. It's got an upside-down star, and it's got horns, and yeah, it's bad. Right? We would do that. That's not the way the enemy works because, again, the enemy's not stupid. He weasels his way in other ways. Weasels his way in through the Internet in your house, through the streaming services in your house, through the books and magazines in your house. See, that's the thing. That's the way the enemy works, right? Comes in without us knowing it. Full frontal assault. Most of us are like, I'm geared up for it. Come on. But we're not geared up from the fact that when we have beamed into our house every day is worse than anything we would really ever allow in if we knew it was there. So be aware. Don't be like Israel and just go, oh, we're here. Everything's fine. Constantly, continuously on your guard. So the land was polluted. Spurgeon points out that the last line, they played the whore in their deeds. Remember, Israel is God's bride. He is the groom. And what we see is we see that Israel is whoring herself out. That's why the book of Hosea is so great. Which, by the way, the women's Bible study is going to be doing it this fall. And ladies, you should all sign up. Hosea is so great because Hosea is a big, huge parable about Israel, about us pursuing all sorts of other things as opposed to our God. They broke the marriage bond between them and the Lord and fell into spiritual adultery. The language is strong, says Spurgeon, but the offense could not be fitly described in less forcible words. What wickedness. To commit this folly and wickedness, they cast off the true God whose miracles they'd seen and whose people they were. This was the provocation of the severest sort. So no surprise, verse 40, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the land, hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. This is the Babylonian captivity probably, but there were plenty of other captivities it could be. Their enemies oppressed them. They were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low in their iniquity. See, here's the thing. We, we, we are just like Israel. We think just a change of location is going to change the problem. But the problem is not the location. The problem is not where I'm at. The problem is right here. The problem is in the heart. Israelites are in Egypt. Oh, we have, a hard, we have a heart problem. Okay, they go to the wilderness. Oh, we have a heart problem. Okay, if we only get to the promised land, it's going to be fine. Promised land, heart problem. The problem is the heart. The heart is rebellious. The heart is wicked. We need a new heart, like it promises us in Ezekiel. So why do we spend so much time talking about sin? Maybe you're here today and you're going, like, Christians, I mean, this whole psalm is all about sin, 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 sin. Aren't you just makes you grumpy. But the truth is, verses 6 through 43, which was a catalog of sins, was written by someone who is happier than we are. He's a happier man than all of us. You know why? Because he sees his sin, he owns it, and he takes it to the only place that'll deal with it. 
Because if you don't take your sin to Christ and allow him to deal with it, it's not dealt with and it's still on you and no wonder you can't move past it. No wonder you can't do it. Sinclair, uh, uh, Ligon Duncan writes, though I'm the worst sinner that I know, God's grace is greater than I ever dared dream that it would be. And so this man who has cataloged his sins and the sins of his people is not a miserable sinner. He's a happy, forgiven sinner. Now you may say, okay, all right, I, I see what you did there, Pastor John, I got it. But mine are too great. Okay, they're not. There is no one here in this building who has done something so egregious that God cannot forgive them. Look at the Israelites, right? They saw how great God was and they thumbed their nose and said, nope, we'll make our own God, thank you very much. They sacrificed their children to demons. They worshiped demons. And yet what? If they repent, they're forgiven. So what does that mean for you? It means there is nothing you have done that the God of the universe will not forget. He will forgive it right now. So the Israelites, they suffer punishment, loss, and delay. And despite their forgiveness, God hears their repentance, their cries. Look at verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Cry out to God. For their sake he remembered his covenant, relenting according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. This is their repentance. Spurgeon writes again, he just too many good quotes. His fiercest wrath towards his people is only a temporary flame. His love burns the strongest forever in light of eternity. So the hate that he has for sin and the judgment and the destruction that he throws on to the sin is nowhere near as good as the love that he has for us. This God who remembers when we forget. This God who is faithful when we are faithless. The God who is merciful when we are sinful. This is the God who defies all of our expectations. As Dane Ortland writes, he's the one whom love and compassion pour out of his very heart. He does not harbor grudges. He enjoys washing sinners in a flood of love and mercy. This is who he is. And God shows this most clearly in Jesus Christ. And praise be to God that we get to look back to Jesus. We don't have to hope that he's coming. He's already come. He shows that our best days do not define us, nor do our worst days. Jesus endured separation from the Father so that we can stand under the fountain of a loving God. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is open yourself up to it. All religions in the world say, do good, you get good stuff. Do bad, you get bad stuff. Here it says, nope, love, grace, kindness, mercy, loving kindness, compassion, all are his, and he pours them out on those who are under his protection, that are under his love. Like the old song, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. On your best day, no matter what that looks like, you are not good enough to get yourself into heaven. If you pile up hundreds and thousands of your best days and they are better than everybody else's, they are not enough to get you into heaven. But praise be to God that our worst days are not what define us either. You can pile up a hundred of the worst days and if you repent and you throw yourself at the foot of the cross, you will be forgiven. 
Verse 47, this is our cry. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So despite our sinfulness, God has the last word. His word is grace and redemption for those who trust in him. We must cry out to him. See, the thing is, our unfaithfulness in light of his faithfulness makes it even more heinous, doesn't it? Makes it even worse. God is so good to us and we are so unfaithful. But we flip that around and we see his faithfulness in light of our unfaithfulness defies all adjectives. Defies wondrous, amazing, marvelous, just keep going. And those words are not anywhere near enough to describe how amazing his faithfulness is in compared to our unfaithfulness, which allows us to sing and praise the Lord. So what does this look like for us? Three final little applications and then we're done. So if today all you are is a failure, you look at yourself and you go, there is nothing in me. I do not have best days. It's just bad days all the way down. Well, today is that day when you can now have your best day ever. You turn to Christ. You submit to him. You confess your sins, repent, and you cling to him just as with Israel no matter how bad you are, no matter how bad you've been, today he will take you in and you are his. And that's your defining nature now. Maybe you've done that. You're like, I did that, I did that way back then. I did that, you know, it's, it's something that's in my past and that's fine. But you don't understand, Pastor John. I know that I shouldn't be doing this or that. And it's too much. I don't feel like I can connect with God. So the second word I have for you is your failures are still defining you. Past sins, current sins, you feel unworthy. So what do you do? You try to work real hard to earn God's favor. You try to do things, try to make sure I don't do these sins, but then you keep falling back to them over and over and over again. Stop, confess your sins, and throw yourself on the Lord. Lord, I need your help. He is the one that defines you, not your sins. When you confess your sins, they are no longer on you. Remember the psalm from two weeks ago? The sins are as far as the east is from the west. They are so far away from God. God forgets them and moves on from them. You need to walk in that forgiveness. You need to go, these sins do not define me. My Lord and Savior defines me, and I am as pure as Jesus Christ is because of his death and my submitting to him. Okay, so maybe those first two don't apply to you. You see your life as kind of full of successes. Your successes defined you. Past success, past redemption, or sorry, repentance, past righteousness, some of you in this room, you, the reason you're a Christian is because of something you've done in the past. And from that point on, you've been stagnant. You've just kind of gone with the flow. Like the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea and thought that was it. No, your past successes do not define who you are. Your Savior defines who you are. So take where you're at right now, and confess, Lord, I have become stagnant. I have stopped where I'm at. I am totally fine with just getting along. Lord, you have more for me. Lord, you have an infinite number of things for me. Maybe it's I need to start talking to my neighbor about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe it just means I need to start checking my house to make sure I've not let the Canaanites in. Maybe it's time for you to get into service. Maybe it's something you need to start working to serve others. 
for sure you must remember. And see, the thing is, we try to remember on our own, we're going to fail. So every morning, wake up, confess, Lord, I can't do this. I need your help. Open your word. Let me see something new. New morning mercies every day. I want to see it. Our current relationship with Jesus is what defines us. So how's that going for you? Because ultimately, where we want to get to is we want to get to verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen and praise the Lord. He's given us reason to praise him. It's because he's faithful when we're unfaithful. He remembers when we forget. He's merciful and gracious when we are full of sin. We need to remember that every single day. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, week by week, I'm amazed at how your word, written centuries and centuries ago, written to a different people, can speak right into us today, in 2023, and speak right to our hearts. And Lord, I know you're speaking, and I know that the words that I say don't matter, but what matters is what your spirit is doing in the hearts of these people. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work on us. Help us not to forget. Help us to remember what you've done and help us to remember how it is you who've done it. Lord, help our failures not to define us. Help our successes not to define us. Help your son's life, death, and resurrection in our place to be our defining feature. Let it be out there for all to see. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.